Let's turn in our Bibles to the passage of Scripture which we read, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And as God would help me, I'd like to concentrate on verses 11 and 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, speaking about Christ. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John wrote his gospel several years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some people maintain it was 20 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote theirs. And you might say, do we need a fourth gospel? We already have three accounts. Do we need a fourth gospel? And it's John himself who says at the end of his gospel uh, that if everything about Christ was written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. So John, if you're writing a fourth gospel, there's no need to repeat what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have written about. If there's plenty other things to write about, No need to repeat these things. But what do we find? We find John telling us for a fourth time the story of feeding the 5,000. We find John telling us for the fourth time about Peter's profession. And then a few hours, I think, he could only, or a few days at the most afterwards, he denies Christ. You find him writing a fourth time. And you say, why repeat what we've already been told three times, John? Then you might say, well, okay, John. If, if you're going to repeat something, tell us more about the temptation. That's a terrific story. We'd like more details. Tell us more about the transfiguration. That's amazing. Moses and Elijah coming back for the Tell us more about that if you're going to repeat things. Tell us more about that, the perfect sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Tell us about that. Tell us more about the second coming if you're going to repeat things. What did we find? He doesn't even mention them. He doesn't mention these things. What's the explanation? The explanation is that the real author of Scripture... The real author of the Gospel of John is the Holy Spirit. We are told that's the doctrine of the whole of this of the inspiration of Scripture. The holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they did write. Now, John tells us in the second last chapter of his gospel what his purpose was 
in writing the gospel. You see, God moved. God put into John's mind. God gave a burden to John about something and made him write what was in his heart. But it was the spirit that was putting it into his heart to write. And he tells us in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that what? These are written in order that you may believe. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life through his name. Have you read the Gospel of John? Have you read the whole Gospel? Tell me, do you believe? That's why the Holy Spirit put it into John's heart to write the gospel. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that, you have life through his name? That's why John's gospel is a bit different from the other three. The other three Gospels, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. For Well, they are called, that's what they're called. They focus on what Jesus said and what Jesus did. But John is slightly different. John's Gospel, John wants us not simply to know about Jesus. He wants us Trust in Jesus. To trust everything he said. To believe that when he died on that center cross, that Calvary's cross, to believe that he was taking away the sins, all the sins of every person that will be in heaven. Do you believe that? That's why it was written. That's why the gospel is written. That you might believe. And that it might change your life. So let's look at our verses. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. God took the initiative in salvation. Man did not discover God. God came down and revealed himself. God made the first move. There was no plea or cry on earth ascending to heaven. Can you please send someone to us to explain what's gone wrong? We're in an awful mess. 
please tell us how to get out of the mess we got ourselves into. No such plea. God took the initiative long before we were born to send his son. And he came to his own people where you'd expect a welcome. The people called the people of God. He came to the Jews, the people of God, who were looking for a Messiah. And he came to them, and they did not receive him. Now, why? Why did Christ's own people not receive Christ? Well, the first five verses give us a clue. The reason is they did not have three spiritual things. And they all begin with the letter L. Because they had no spiritual life. In him was life. No spiritual life. Human beings are born spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And only Christ can give them life. All life in the last analysis, resides in Christ. When he was on earth, Christ's voice, look at the power of his voice. His voice calmed the sea. He'd be handy in Lewis. We've got a storms. How often are the ferries cancelled? Wouldn't it be great just to speak? Calm the sea. And notice what the scriptures say. The wind and the sea. As we islanders know well, you can stop the wind, but there's a swell for a day. But Christ stopped the swell as well as the wind just by speaking. Just by speaking. His voice healed diseases, killer diseases, healed by Christ speaking. He forgave sins just by speaking. They had no spiritual life. And none of us have any spiritual life until Christ comes into our lives. But secondly, not only did they have no spiritual life, the explanation why they did not receive him is they had no spiritual light. Very clear from verses 4 and he was the he, he the life was in the he was, the light shines in darkness. Human beings by nature are in darkness, and we need light to see what is spiritually obvious. We're spiritually dead, we're spiritually blind, and we need divine light to see what is obvious spiritually. But we're spiritually dead. We're spiritually in darkness. Now, light and darkness 
They are not equals. They are direct opposites. But they're not equals. Never get mixed up about that. Our Bible tells us wisdom excels folly as much as light excels darkness. What's the definition of darkness? It's the absence of light. I think I've probably said it here again, but it bears here. I'm told, better watch the repetitions in the congregation, the real test for blindness is to put someone in a dark room and then shine a torch and ask, can you see the light? And if you cannot see the light in a dark room, you're blind. It is certainly true spiritually. Can you see the light of the world? Can you see it's Christ? How often did we read it? In these first few verses. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Light and darkness are not equal. Darkness can't shine in light, but light can shine in darkness. The definition of darkness is the absence of light. So, they didn't receive him because they had no spiritual life and because they had no spiritual light. Third, they did not receive Christ, though he came to his own people. Because they had no spiritual love. Now listen, they had love for themselves. We have lots of self-love. But we have no love for God by nature. Am I right? By nature, we don't love holiness. Am I right? By nature, we don't love righteousness. Isn't that right? Oh, we love ourselves. Oh, we love ourselves. We love what we like. We want what we want. But we were made to do what God wants. That's why we were made. We want control. Actually, in the last analysis, the real reason we reject Christ is that we want to be in control of everything, especially ourselves. Am I right? Is that right? Do you feel it? Do you sense it? Are you having any conviction? Are you sensitive? What kind of consciences have we? Are we sensitive? Have we the courage to say, yes, I'm living to please myself? Well, in that case, and it's true of every one of us, especially true of me, that by nature we live to do what we want, but we were made to please what God wants. 
He came to his own, but his own people, his own people did not receive him. But, that glorious but in the Bible, what an important word that three-lettered word but is. Oh, it's true. He came to his own people that wouldn't have him, but to all who did receive him. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Note how faith is defined in the Bible. It's defined by receiving. Gospel faith is not doing something. It's receiving something. I remember reading about a man that was dying. And he was converted, and possibly on his deathbed. I can't remember how, how near the end it was. But he said... All my life, I've been trying to find out what have I to do to be saved. And I've discovered now, it's not doing something. It's receiving something. It's receiving all that Christ has done as my salvation, as my only hope for heaven. That's faith. It's not faith in what we do. It's faith in what Christ has done once and for all. There's, there's levels of faith. The first level we might call assent. Believing about Jesus. I'm sorry. There's there's nothing saving about that. Believing about Jesus. Very, very few intelligent people do not believe Jesus lived and was crucified. In fact, I remember, I remember doing open university course on Christianity, and I was so encouraged when the tutor gave a wonderful uh, account of the crucifixion. And of course, I was a bit green and just assumed he was a Christian. And I said, oh, very pleased to hear that you're a Christian. Oh, he says, I'm not a Christian. I said, you've just given us an excellent account of the crucifixion. Oh, he says, I believe it happened, but I don't believe he died for my friends. See? It's faith in, not believing about. There's not a person in this room who doesn't believe about Jesus coming down to earth, being crucified. That's about him. But there's a deeper level that we need to get. The only prepositions used in the scriptures about faith in Jesus is the preposition in and the prep or the preposition on. We're to believe in Jesus and we're to believe on Jesus, not about Jesus. 
You see, what's the difference? Well, put it this way. Do you believe in Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister or just about him? Do you believe in Boris Johnston? Do you believe in Nicola Sturgeon? Humza Yusuf? Do you believe in them, their policies? Or do you just believe about them? Oh, Prime Minister, First Minister, no problem. But do you trust them? So the second level of faith is reliance. Personal trust in and utter dependence upon something. That's a level of faith, reliance. Do you trust in Christ? Do you trust on Christ? That his death at Calvary paid God atoned for your sins if you believed. It's a personal dimension. It's subjective. It's not objective. I believe about him, that he did this and that he did that. Do I personally trust in him and on him? There's a third level too, actually. It's perseverance. Faith is not actually a single step. It begins with a single step. But it's an ongoing relationship with Jesus. Perseverance. So which faith saves the soul? I put it this way. A persistent reliance on Jesus' death as an atonement for my sin. And I'm accepted before God. I'm on the way to heaven. I'm not much better than I was, if I'm any better. But I'm depending that Christ's death paid for my sins at the place called Calvary. You see, reliance on Christ saves. Persevering in relying on him is the evidence that you're relying on him. You're continuing, despite the trouble that might get you into. And let me tell you, Christianity will get you into trouble. But you still love Christ. You're still going to stick with him. He's still the only hope there is. It's interesting, in both Hebrew and Greek languages, the word, the word faith, and the word faithfulness are both the same exactly the same the word for faith and the word for faithfulness is exactly the same in both Hebrew and Greek God knew what he was doing when he had the original languages of his word in Hebrew and Greek receiving Christ into our hearts and lives mean Receiving all that he said, all that he did. Receiving his teaching, receiving his, his authority, receiving his will. And we're challenged in the gospel. Faith is depending upon him for salvation. We can't atone for our own sins, but Christ died 
to atone for other people's sins. And these other people are all who receive Christ as the only way to heaven, the only way to forgiveness. All who did receive him. Wonderful term, eh? But all who did receive him. No exceptions. No exceptions. The gospel excludes no one. Irrespective of background, condition, culture, lifestyle, irrespective of your past, doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how often you've done it. Doesn't matter what condition you're in. All that matters is that you're depending that he paid God for the sins of all who believe in him and trust on him. The only qualification for the gospel is that you don't deserve it. Now, what does it say about those who did receive Christ, who believe in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God. That is amazing. He gave them the right to become children of God. That word translated right is elsewhere in the Bible, translated as authority or power. It's a word, well, it can be power or authority or right. Isn't that amazing? Imagine having the right to be a child of God. Whatever anyone says about you from now on, you're the right to be a child of God. You have divine authority to say you're a child of God if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have divine authority to be a child of God. That's, 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 that's tremendous. What our Bible is telling us here is that no one is merely forgiven when he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you believe in Christ, every sin you've ever committed and every sin you will commit is forgiven. That's tremendous. But God goes further than men. Everyone he forgives, he adopts into his family as a child. Everyone. Consider God adopting sinners. That's an amazing thing. It really is. Consider who normally adopt children. Normally, not always, but normally it's people that don't have children. And would love them. Had God the Father no child? Why does he adopt children? 
Had he no sons already? Yes. Yes. Something wrong with him? No, no, no. No, no. Absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Why does he want more? Think not only the fact that he had already a perfect son, but think of who he adopts to be his children. Worms of the dust. Children of wrath. That's who he adopts. He takes them into his family, brothers and sisters of an absolutely perfect brother. Isn't that something? But here's the most amazing thing. He had to pay for it. I suppose I'm back to the children's story. He had to pay for it. He made us. We turned against him. We kept him out of our lives. And he wants to adopt us. And the price, the cost, that one perfect son he had already has to be crucified in agony. That's the price. Isn't it amazing? God adopts. Isn't it amazing? If you're a believer in Christ, if you just believed last night, you have the right to call yourself a child of God. Well, our time's up. Just two things in conclusion. If you are a Christian, what reason you have to be holy, happy, humble? Oh, you can't be proud. Come on. You can't be proud. A proud Christian's a, a misnomer, a contradiction in terms How can you be proud? God's blessed you, yes. You're a child of heaven, yes. No thanks to you. Thanks to Jesus. Thanks to Christ. What reason you have to be humble. What reason you have to be happy. Who else has a right? You're standing on a penalty-free zone. You're immune from prosecution from God, not from prosecution of men, but prosecution from God. You're immune. What reason to be happy? You're going to heaven, to glory. What reason you have to be happy? What reason you have to be humble? What reason you have to be holy? But what if you're not a Christian? What if you're not a Christian? Every single blessing that belongs to Christians is offered to you in the gospel right here, right now. You can become a child of God by repenting of your past and depending on Christ's death as a sacrifice for your sins 
and you've immediately the right to call yourself a child of God. The gospel is wonderful. Wonderful. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. May God the Holy Spirit make his truth, his word, effectual to every one of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, be pleased to take the things of Christ and to make them ours. Bestow upon every single one of us from their youngest child upwards that saving faith which unites us to your Son. Hear us in mercy, answer us in peace as we pray all in Christ's name for your glory. Amen. We conclude our service of worship by singing from Psalm 31 in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 31 from verse 21 to the end. That's on page 243. Page 243, Psalm 31 at verse 21. All praise and thanks be to the Lord, for he hath magnified his wondrous love to me within a city fortified. Down to the last verse. Be of good courage, and his strength unto your heart shall send, all ye whose hope and confidence doth on the Lord depend. Psalm 31, verse 21. Praise
and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.